Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this is the Journey to Transformation. We are taking some time off for health and wellness, so we are re-releasing Attention Good White People. This episode is a really raw and personal conversation me and Tia had about a year ago. Conversations about race and racial inequality are ongoing, and so we want you to listen to this episode again and again. Especially you, you white people. You better listen. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Lauren. Hi, I'm Tia. <laughs> and this is the That's journey to transformation. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about how Lauren sounds like she's on an adult phone line when she does her intro. So maybe I'll just shake it up a bit every week. Yeah. Can you do different voices? Possibly. Let's hear it. Let's hear one. No, I no, I'm not doing it now. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> Right. What are we talking about today? I don't know. What are we talking about today? White people. Same thing we talk about every day. Okay. White (laughs) people. Should we be giving them that much, me, that much space? Yeah. Them. (laughs) Me. That's me. (laughs) What would you say your favorite ethnicity or race is? Wow. I don't think I've thought about that. Well, I want you to think about it now. But why would I have a favorite? Let's play Fuck, Mary Kill. Pick three. (laughs) Because, no, I couldn't do that. I love how you a little bit were thinking through that. I started and then was I like, no, there's so many things in wrong your with eyes. <laughs> so many things. This is my favorite thing that you've ever done. Yeah, we're talking about white allies. I was interested to continue this conversation, just building off what we talked about with Evie from Peaks of Color. If you haven't listened to that episode, check it out. Yeah, just building off this idea of allies and do we like allies and what what are we as brown people, as queer people, as people with different abilities, people who are neurodivergent, people who are displaced in some way, people who all the ways in which a person may or may be different from the majority of people. What are we all thinking about allies and allyship? Okay, so I mean, I suppose the first point is like, what do we? What is an ally? I don't know. Like allyship, like what is it? Because it, it's coming up a lot, like in especially with organisations talking about racial justice and organisations moving to be more anti-racist, which is seen as part of this sort of transformational journey that we're discussing in our our episodes, but really kind of honing in on what it means to be an ally. I mean, I think that there's things that are thrown around on Instagram that I've seen, but do you want to read out, read out a definition? What are people throwing around on Instagram? Well, I mean, just like, you know, people on Instagram. Well, I follow quite a few groups, I suppose, that are like promoting anti-racism and they have like definitions of allyship okay. that they post on Instagram. Okay. But maybe we should read out the definition or. All right. Well, I'll read one out. This is, I've just done a basic Google search. It looks like this is from Bryn Mawr, which is a school in the States. Okay. Allyship is a process. Okay. And everyone has more to learn. Allyship involves a lot of listening. Sometimes people say doing ally work or acting in solidarity with to reference the fact that ally is not an identity. It is an ongoing and lifelong process that involves a lot of work. One type of ally is a white ally. A white ally acknowledges the limits of his, her, their knowledge about other people's experiences, but doesn't use this as a reason not to think and or act. A white ally does not remain silent, but confronts racism as it comes up daily, but also seeks to deconstruct it institutionally and live in a way that challenges systemic oppression at the risk of experiencing some of that oppression. Being a white ally entails building relationships with both people of color and also with white people in order to challenge them in their thinking about race. White allies don't have it all figured out, but are committed to non-complacency. And then they cite a couple of documents, one from Racism School, another from Francis E. Kendall's How to Be an Ally If You're a Person with Privilege, and then a resource from the UC Berkeley Gender Equity Resource Center on Allyship, Challenging Heterosexism and Hermophobia. Okay. 
So it's it's not just related to race. No, I don't think so. Okay, so you can be an ally to other marginalized groups. Yeah. I think it's about being a person of privilege and being an ally for others. This does focus on being a white ally and okay. confronting yeah. racism. Yeah. So there's like a component of that. Okay. Okay. But then they talk about like systemic oppression, which could be. I think being a white ally situates that person in relationship to race, but acting in solidarity perhaps is just about, could be about any. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose like from that, it's, there are some things in there that are quite broad and some things that are quite narrow. So it kind of gives the flex to, as a white person, determine, I suppose, your own kind of personal reflections and how you want to be a white ally and creating some of those or addressing your complacency. Yeah. I like this definition. It feels very actionable. Yeah. Because it says specifically what you should do. And the thing that I like, which is the issue I have with the concept of allies as a whole, is the risk of experiencing some of that oppression. Because my beef with allyship is that it never really feels like, like, oh, I'm an ally, a little whatever. But it doesn't ever feel like when shit is on the line, you get heat for that. Mm. And this is, you know, if you've listened to the episode about Evie, this is my kind of primary complaint about how I understand allies and how I've seen allies operate in the world is that yeah. it doesn't ever seem to be give a good example of some self-professed white allies that I've encountered in my life where they will be like, yes, no, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. And they'll do internal petitions within organizations. But then when it actually comes to like the great brown flight and all of the brown people saying, we can't take this anymore, we're leaving. You never actually see any of those allies leave as well. Yeah, right. Although in one example, I'm thinking of you left. So <laughs> good for you. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But I, I think that there's that kind of labeling piece, right? That people are like, yes, I'm a white ally. Label me as such. And how much that feeds into this for me, it might, it feeds into a bit some of the things that Lindsay was saying about, you know, you kind of think it's not you, it's somebody else that is causing the issue or is racist. And therefore, by labeling yourself as a white ally, it's kind of like a bit of a, a free pass. And, and I imagine in some ways that is how it's being used. You know, I'm a white ally. I'm saying I am. Therefore, there's my free pass to not actually doing anything about it and also reinforcing ironically the systems of oppression that you say you're going to do something about. And what Lauren is referring to is a conversation with Lindsay B from Quirky Campers. If you haven't listened to that episode, head on over there after this one, give it a listen. Thanks. <laughs> I just realized people might be like, Ooh. Yeah, sorry, you're right. We got some good advice from the podcast show to yes. be more <laughs> explicit <laughs> about what we're saying and when. So I want to read, um, I just found something on allyship that was posted a day ago on an account called Girls Against Stop Oppression. And it says, what? Yeah. I Is it know. Girls Against Good Grammar? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> and it says, although the word ally has become somewhat of a buzzword, it was originally used to describe a person who stands alongside a marginalized group of people without belonging to them to fight for their liberation. So, so very much like the one you said. Mm. Then it goes on to say, nowadays it can carry a negative connotation as many people freely use the term ally without actually effectively helping the community for which they are supposedly standing. The term has hence become almost synonymous with self-serving intent for many within the activist realm and can act as a red flag to warn of someone who is virtue signaling. So, I like that. Yeah, very much kind of what we were just saying. About Sorry about the dig about grammar because, <laughs> yeah. You've made up for it then. <laughs> <laughs> and and sort of in some of the comments underneath, it says all that authentic allyship thread. And that's kind of what they're getting at. Mm. So, yeah. But how often is it in the space of like talking about race and anti-racism and whiteness that these terms just get a little bit like co-opted or taken as to be superficial? Yeah, it feels to me like people just want a way to differentiate themselves, like kind of what you were getting at before, like to like differentiate themselves from like hardcore uppercase R racists. Mm. And I think in the act of doing that, they're doing a little racisms. Yeah. Tiny racisms are being done. <laughs> <laughs>
Tiny racisms. (laughs) Tiny little lowercase r racisms. But I'm also wondering then, in the space of you've got tiny racisms and you've got big racism, where and whose responsibility and how perhaps someone like me who is trying to move towards authentic allyship, maybe let's have a conversation about that in a minute. Who's calling out the small racisms against the big racisms you know like is it easier to not notice the small racisms because in the grand scheme of things kind of just flies past you do you know what I mean yeah I understand what you mean I almost feel like the little racisms are the worst ones because they cut the hardest because yeah at least for me those ones feel like they hurt the most because it's the tension of like I know you didn't mean to do this racism but you did a racism and it hurt my feelings. Yeah. At, or they'll be small and you go and you think, well, why didn't you notice that this is something that's it's the world of the micros, right? Like yeah. micro invalidations, microaggressions, micro insults. It's all of these little tiny things like death by a thousand cuts or something like that. Like I'd rather have a big uppercase R racism because you can almost explain that as like extreme behavior and you Mm. can say, well, that person's fucking crazy. But if it's a a person that you love in your life who you know isn't crazy and they're just doing or saying things that are fucking nuts, you can't really push it into the realm of fucking nuts. You can, it's not that it's, it's in the space of like, oh, you're doing a thing and saying a thing or behaving in a way that you don't actually realize is hurtful. And that almost for me feels worse Mm. because it's so tiny and it, can be really hard to explain why it hurts. And I think that's the bit like, you know, I have people in my life, relatives who've said crazy stuff and I'm like, oh, it's really hard to explain to you why that's hurtful to me or why that would be hurtful to a large group of people. It's very hard to do that because then also then you've got this feeling of like, well, I don't want to seem like irrational. I don't want to seem like an angry black lady. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and then it draws in all the other like <laughs> issues with racism, <laughs> stereotypes and so on. Exactly. Yeah. So then you, like, you layer all of these things on. So then it almost yeah. becomes this thing of like, well, is it worth it to have this conversation? Mm-hmm. You know, it's the stuff when you and I have been together and we're in a cafe or something and like people are only looking at you right, and not right. at all addressing me. Yeah. It's hard then for me to explain to this random person why that's offensive yeah um and so much energy on your part it's just too much energy for for a random white dude in a cafe yeah but like that's where i want you to step in actually yeah yeah Uh, because i think like for me spending like time with you in these cafes or whatever (laughs) we don't just go to cafes (laughs) yeah sorry there's a bit of a um, we do spend a lot of time in cafes anyway um you know and and seeing how frequently that happens Mm. i think is is something that you know is yeah alarming yeah i think people who are allies if there's one thing that i could ask you to do it's just take the psychological burden off of your black brown indigenous friends and loved ones by noticing that moment and calling that moment out yourself because it's fucking exhausting. Yeah. It's very exhausting. Like I've been in situations where I've been traveling and I get the context. I get where that situates itself, but I've been traveling or I've lived abroad and people just assume I'm the maid. And so I'll be in a restaurant and people won't give me a menu, for example, or will ask the white people what I'm going to be having for my meal, which then creates a situation where I feel like then I have to make a big show of like ordering like big bottles of champagne and like paying for everybody. Cause I'm like, yeah, I'm that boss bitch, dude. Like I feel like then yeah, it's just yeah. all this energy and yeah. expense and I don't want to have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how many champagne bottles you're going to have to order to get to the other side. But... And I guess I'm just reflecting a bit then on, you know, who is doing these kind of smaller micro racisms, you know, because that guy, that waiter or whatever, <laughs> I don't know why I'm using this as a go-to. But to know. be clear, this is not our normal places. So this Sole Luna, we're not talking about you. We yeah. love you. Yeah, You're no, fantastic. I'm just daughter. really making this in my head. <laughs> but you know, that that waiter or whatever, he, he's kind of not anything to do with you on a personal or professional level. But then, you know, the people who are making these micro racisms about I'm a white ally, but not seeing it through tend to be people that I think are closer to you or have been in the workplace or other kinds of relationships. Yeah. And it's almost like the expectation. And I'm 
don't want to speak for you, but I'm wondering, you know, is it that they say this and then you go in with the expectation because you're in the same workplace or whatever? Yeah. And then it's almost a massive racist catfish because (laughs) then, you know, it's, it's not the case. Yeah. No, I think I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. I mean, you're not really speaking for me, to be fair, because we've had this conversation before. But I think there's, I want, when people are like, I, I've got your back, I have you, I want to believe that that's true. And it does speak a little bit, again, just going back to the episode where we talked about Evie, where she's asking for like proof, like prove you're safe, because white people are not reliable allies. And so I think it's really important And I don't think that their reliability is a reflection on their intention. I just think it's really hard. If you don't have lived experience of what it's like to be systematically treated like shit, it's very hard then for you to recognize the subtleties and the nuance. So I don't think that when I say white people are not reliable allies, it's not because I think all white people are fucking assholes. There are some white people that I really, really enjoy. Like three or four of you, I think are great. Just kidding. But... You know, I think that it just comes from not having the same hyper vigilance, hyper awareness, hyper sensitivity to situations. And that when you and I walk into the same situation, you're not going to get that kind of prickly anxiety feeling. Mm -hmm. So it's hard for me to say, like, here's where your allyship needs to be situated because this is where I need you. Because Mm -hmm. then I have to explain why I'm getting the like prickly feeling. You know, right, right. And then if I'm doing that, then I'm putting myself, I'm situating myself in that moment. I'm embedding myself in that moment even harder. Yeah. But I don't necessarily want to do that. Like when I'm at the cafe, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to so, do that. <laughs> so, so there's, there's almost kind of unfortunately a trade off between the energy you want to put into something in that moment and kind of the, expectation of what you need from a white ally yeah well not trade-off okay, I don't yeah know no yeah judge. i don't know if that's quite the right word yeah yeah but you know what i mean just sort of not a trade-off then but maybe a i don't know a consideration for how they meet for yourself in these spaces in the cafe <laughs> in the cafe yeah i think what i want from allyship is to not do something by myself mm-hmm. Because that's the bit that feels hard. So I don't want to have to do it alone. But similarly, the more I have to explain where I need somebody, I'm already now in that moment. So I just kind of want somebody to like take it for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Definitely. So then reflecting a little bit on a lot of this as a white person addressing racisms and micro racisms that are very much there. Have you invented this word micro racism? I thought it, I thought we said it. I thought you said it. Microaggressions. More oh. <laughs> racisms. You said micro racisms yeah, a couple of times. And I I mean, I'm kind of into it. <laughs> I'm mixing a bunch of things in my head. You want a white ally to step up into the space. And just do it, just do it. Yeah. But also, I think, you know, as a white person, you are on a journey of getting it wrong. Yeah. And, you know, you're, I think, the again, referencing the conversation with Lindsay, it was really interesting to acknowledge that and have a conversation about we're going to get it wrong many times. And she had a great reflection on that um, and how you accept that discomfort. So how, how does that meet? Like, what if as a white ally, I'm going to step in, but I'm going to get it wrong how does that feel for you? Is it the trying as a white ally that's okay? Or could the getting it wrong be more heavy, if you see what I mean? Yeah, I I get what you mean. And I think that this has to do with like a person's power. Like Mm -hmm. I'm just exhausted. Yeah. So I don't want to have to do it. So if next time we're in the cafe, if you're just like, hang on, there's two of us here, or you're like intentionally redirecting your gaze or deferring to redirect that person. Yeah then like that just takes a bit of pressure off of me because I don't have to then be trying to catch this person's eye or whatever. Yeah. But then that also can situate itself within for different people. I'm just really fucking tired of it. But some people are like in it for the good fight and intervening as an ally is could be considered to be taking a person's power away to speak for themselves. And then isn't that then also problematic, right? right. Like I'm intervening because you 
little brown person can't speak for yourself. So I'm going to jump in. Right. 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 So I get that. I get, I get that it's hard to be white ally. I get that. it's. So then then I think there's a very simply, it's about like asking how that person might want you to show up and then not asking again. (laughs) Ask one time and then just roll with it. If you get it wrong, if it's uncomfortable, you have to deal with those feelings. That's it. But I feel like any person you are in relationship to where you are having these dynamic moments occur, I feel like they're probably somebody who's going to be happy or open to having a conversation about when it doesn't feel right to situate themselves there. Like, I don't think a reasonable person... If we were having a conversation, if this, let's go back to the cafe, right? If you were like, hang on, there's two of us here, whatever, we're both, give us both equal respect in whatever verbal or nonverbal way that manifests. And that wasn't comfortable for me if I wanted to do that myself. I feel like after that moment, I'd just be like, you know what? I appreciate what, what you're doing there. I've got it. Yeah. I feel like... So maybe that's the bit of like getting it wrong, but... but yeah. You know. I mean, I'm not going to be like, oh, you fucking... Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm just, oh, white people. Because the intention is... Yeah. To be supportive. It's almost the other way of like the intention to be supportive in the absence of action versus action that may not hit the mark. All Because you can't take the same action all the time for all the brown people. Not all the brown people will like all the same thing. <laughs> Right. I mean, there are some things we all love universally as black, brown, indigenous people. I can't tell you what that is because it's a secret. But gelato. (laughs) Pistachio gelato. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, everyone. I told Lauren the secret. (laughs) Meanwhile, you can get it from the cafe. (laughs) That's secretly why we go to the Right. But like, do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. I I think that any reasonable human being interacting in this way with another reasonable human being is going to see the intention and the meaning behind that as being one of kindness, care, actual allyship. I'd rather have it be that way than somebody being like, yeah, I got you. And then in these moments, not recognizing or hearing or seeing or being attuned to what's going on. And I think that's the bit is just like being attuned to it and acting on it. Yeah. That, that is like, I think everything you've just said ha- is really, really helpful, at least from my perspective. I can't speak for a white people, <laughs> but that is really helpful in terms of perhaps what you can do and, you know, ha- how you might balance some internal discomfort and feelings around it. One thing I'd like to explore a little bit outside of the cafe is how this There's nothing else. <laughs> is how do, how this manifests in the workplace and you know we talk a lot in episodes about organizations needing to transform do they just need a bunch of white allies that are challenging waiters in cafes and and how do you deal with it when the superficial white allies in your workplace mm but you have to work with them. Like, what do you do? Yeah, I think that's the harder bit, to be fair, because the po- the hard bit is what you just said. You have to work with these people. Situating yourself in a cafe where you were like detached from that person or like on a public transportation or wherever, it's, it's a completely different scenario. But when you have to interact with people and there's a power dynamic that's involved in that, right? Like what if two people have the same boss and that boss is an asshole? Saying from experience. <laughs> so I think there's like a really hard thing about the dynamics that exist in that space. I do think there's stuff that like, there's stuff that I have benefited from that I think is good in like amplifying the message or amplifying the voice, because I appreciate that those power structures are really hard to deal with. And I'm not perfect. I have been caught out many times by not not supporting other people because I haven't quite recognized it. I haven't been very sure about what to do. I felt the weight of those dynamics playing on me. I haven't, you know, again, we've had conversations before about people saying, well, nobody's perfect and no, you know, nobody can be perfect all the time. Perfection is not what anybody is asking for. And that's certainly not what we're talking about here. It's not about being perfect. It's about all the ways that you can try 
to be better, a better human, a better colleague, better boss, and that you're trying to build off of all the moments and trying to recognize when you weren't exactly there for the for the moments you should have been and then making trying to grow in those areas. Nobody's asking for perfection. Right. I th- I think things that I've benefited from certainly if I'm talking in a meeting and people are directing their attention towards me and then saying that's a really good point. Yes. Ah, you know, like amplifying, supporting, validating, not in an annoying way because mm. I've had this done to me in like ways that I find very annoying or <laughs> they like Do share. <laughs> Where people have been like, they're generally white women who are just saddled with more guilt than is comprehensible in some ways. But they'll be like, really great point, Tia. Yes. Has everyone heard Tia's point? Isn't yeah. it fantastic? Mmm. <laughs> mmm. And doing all of these kinds of things. And I'm just oh, like, this cringe. is disgusting. Yeah. Stop it. I think finding ways to redirect or to say, you know, when you're in a meeting, if it feels appropriate and you know the people and you know their level of comfort, like asking, you know, we do this when we're facilitating workshops, to, you know, whatever it is. When we call on people, we try to make the first person we call on a woman right. or a woman of color or to say, OK, we've heard from a lot of men. Can we we want to make sure that there's space for other voices? And I think I will give him a shout out. Duncan Green. No way. Yeah, Duncan I'm Green. Surprised. Duncan a white Green. man. I will give a white man. I'm not, you know, I'd have no issues giving people their dues. But Duncan Green put something on Twitter where it was, I can't remember it in total now, but we'll find it. We'll stay in the show notes. But it was basically like statistically, when a woman is called on first, it creates this ripple effect where then other women feel free to speak. So in meetings, where it's just left open and the man is the first speaker, then that means that in most meetings, it will often be men who dominate those conversations. Obviously now I'm just, this is like research that's operating in the binary of like men and women, whatever. That's interesting though. Yeah. And I thought that it was very, really, really interesting. And since then, I've made very conscious efforts to try and call on women first mm-hmm. when we're doing workshops. Obviously, not. I would vomit if somebody called on me first in a meeting. Yeah, me too. I would. I like, don't like it. Yeah, I would pretend my computer had broken, especially yeah. if it was like with loads of other people. Yeah, and so I think you have to kind of couch that in a sort of like we want to make the space, so I'd like to invite some of the women. But I think that there's stuff like that where you're making conscious efforts to hold, to create, and hold spaces mm. for people of color for women, like that your job as a white person, as a white person of privilege is to hold and create those spaces. You know, if we're thinking about in an organization, is this very much dependent on an individual? Is this all the individuals in an organization, you know, if the majority of them white taking their own journey to allyship or whatever and acting on some of these things? Or should there be a commitment from the organization, maybe through a racial justice mandate? Like, is it individual and organizational level, do you think? I would rather see it be individual, to be honest. Mm. You know, the second organizations start doing like, um, we're going to do a strategy on anti-racism and whatever. Yeah. I'm like, woof, you've taken it out of organizations are people. Yeah. Institutions are people, people's minds, the legacy of people's minds, their behaviors, their practice. It's just baked into all the processes. It's baked into all the ways that it operates. Yeah. But I feel like if it's, if the people are situated within like a grounding principle, yeah, harmonizing ethos, I don't think it needs to be codified in a document or a strategy somewhere that says like how you're going to do this 10 steps to being an anti-racist, whatever. (laughs) Like, I actually think that that just creates this weird, I feel like it does two things. People say, oh, we've got these principles. That's the end of our work. Mm Mm-hmm. Or I feel like what it does is it creates a prescription of how to be this thing when it might be different depending on who you're interacting with, the space that you're interacting in. Like every beneficiary and rights holder in the world. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like once you start situating things into like mandates and stuff, while I think it's good and there was a time when we needed that because we weren't good at it. We weren't good at, you know, gender equity and and these strategies and our anti-racism strategy kind of assumes that from that it will filter down in some way, right? 
rather than perhaps that the other way around that people are working on it as individuals in their different ways. And actually yeah. those lessons or ways could be rooted in something more understanding or a learning or whatever, you know, yeah. like, yeah. If you need to write it down, fucking write it down. Like, I don't think anybody cares that you're <laughs> writing it down, but I think it's where it's come from. Yes. And what underpins yes. that thinking and where it's situated and how it needs to be reflexive and responsive. Yeah. It has to evolve as people evolve, as our understanding evolves around intersectionality around, you know, whatever, like all of the ways that society is getting better at having these conversations, these complex conversations. I think your internal mechanism needs to also Evolving be able it. to do that. But if you write it down, stick it on your fucking website, then the idea is like, no, no, we've, we've ticked that box. We're good. Right. Whereas it's an embedded, involved, evolving process yeah. that I want people to go on because it's basically like you're taking your own personal journey and bringing it into the workspace. Yeah, which has some complex dynamics in itself, right? In terms of how much you want to and feel comfortable and confident for anybody speaking with the people that, you know, you just make Excel spreadsheets with <laughs> potentially about something quite complex and personal from the varying experiences of people in the organization. I think it's complicated. I, I don't have all the answers. I know what I would like and I know what works for me and I know what I feel is lacking in my interpersonal and professional relationships. And I think that's all you can do is just make sure that as a white ally, you're creating spaces where you're interacting with people who are different from you. Yeah. And that you're inviting conversation. And some of that conversation might be about how you are inadvertently a piece of shit. Right, right. And acknowledging you're part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Are you? I'm definitely part of the problem. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I am part of the problem. <laughs> Which brings me back round to this journey to transformation that we're on in this podcast. We may have talked about this previously. I can't remember as transformation being the end place or not. So in the first episode, we talked about what is transformation and whether transformation is the end goal or not. And I'm wondering about the same in terms of white allyship. That should not be ultimately your end goal, right? As a white person, I'm on a very long journey. And ultimately, I don't think I'm ever going to get there in my lifetime. So acknowledging that, but also asking, is there an end goal? How do I know that I've got to the point in which a white ally is useful <laughs> or whether I've crossed the threshold from being superficial with it to being somewhat acceptable with it <laughs> and, and if not white allyship then then what after that well what was the question what were the questions you asked me the other day I can't remember you were like what am I trying to be yeah. anti-racist right am I working towards collaboration what yeah. am I trying to do <laughs> which I think is a really good question it's funny the way that you started that conversation because I don't think we were talking about that at all but I thought it was really funny <laughs> oh this one no before oh yeah I didn't you know called you me I don't know you were asking me I don't know why you were asking me that but I think maybe you were filling out a form or something <laughs> <laughs> am I a co-liberator anti-racist or a white ally <laughs> self-identification as a white person okay, um, are you doing like your bio for something <laughs> yeah, I don't know but anyway the question remains am I what am I and how do I know I've got to any of those places why do you have to be anything right I mean, like, really, I don't, okay. I don't understand why, like, the second we start saying stuff like that, the labeling piece is the bit that always makes me nervous because that makes it then seem like in this, in the definition that I read earlier, that it's not an identity. It's about work that you do. Mm. A weird random tangent is the evaluation we did with Amnesty International UK and this mm -hmm. idea of like labeling people as human rights defenders. And one of the things that we said is like labeling somebody in that space means something. And maybe it's about describing a person and the action that they take, defending human rights, identity versus action. Right, right. Same applies. I would say the same applies mm -hmm. is that you're working toward allyship, that you're working in solidarity, you're working towards better solidarity with people. Because then it's just about the, the work that you're trying to do as opposed to the person you're trying to become. Mm. And I don't know why it feels different to me, but it does feel somewhat different because then it's not like 
I am this thing. Look at me. I've got my pin and my badge that says, and my mug that says white ally. Like I'm going to get you a mug that says no, white ally. I'm going to get you a mug. Don't. Yeah. I'm going to get you a mug that says white ally. <laughs> wow. Okay. Looking forward to that. I I'll put it. your face on it and then put white ally or like a mug with an arrow that says white ally. And when you drink from it, it's pointing to you. <laughs> <laughs> What are the things that you struggle with as a white ally? Because I've told you all the things that I struggle with, with your allyship. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah I mean, go on. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. Um, I know. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there is, and especially when you're starting out on this journey, the comfort of I'm going to get it wrong, the feeling that I'm going to try anyway even if I get it wrong, the cafe example, really great. I'll speak up even if maybe afterwards you're like, that wasn't quite for me. And I think that knowing and learning in that way in a place of failure or discomfort and kind of evolving as a person through that, I think is is quite difficult to begin with, especially if you don't necessarily have instances to know how to do that in, or Mm. maybe you don't have any black or brown friends or people of color. So, you know, you're talking about action, but what if you can't action that in a space or maybe you just have friends that are are less mean, less meaningful, (laughs) less deep friendships. We all have less meaningful (laughs) friends. It's fine. Oh, you know, friendships that are just there more on the surface level. So then how do you... you Who are your least meaningful friends? (laughs) No. Shut them out. Shut them out. No. So it means <laughs> you have some less meaning. Me from, <laughs> don't make me throw something at you. So <laughs> I'm trying to have a meaningful conversation. You know, so so how do you practice it and action it? My point is, yeah, maybe if you don't have places to practice it or apply it or action some things, then that's quite difficult. And I think the one of the really biggest difficulties is, and you used a word before, like thinking intentionally and being aware of it. Mm. Because if you're not used to it, you've really got to hone into it. And it's only by frequently spending time with people that it's happening to, are you starting to hone into it happening around you yeah. and reading and becoming more alert to it and being and really thinking about as you're in your cafe or your shop, looking around and being like, how is this manifesting in this space? Yeah. Like just being aware of it everywhere around you. That's quite hard. Yeah. It takes practice, intentionality and really honing in on it. And I think so many white people, again, I don't know if I can speak for white people, but okay, I'll speak for me. I mean, the reason you're on this podcast <laughs> is to literally speak for all white people. That is what I expect of you. But before I became more aware of this, I think you live in that kind of blasé space of, you know, not being aware of those things around you. You just don't like, and so there, there is then, I guess, a degree of, of will and want to become aware of it. And Mm. maybe that's going back to the superficial white ally. Maybe you say you are, but how are you seeing that manifest around you, first of all, before acting on it? Because I think that's a really difficult space. Sure. I, I agree that being attuned to it is the hardest bit. So I think if you take as given the universality of your experience, then it's going to be harder for you to be attuned to other people's experiences. And we've talked about this before. If like people don't realize a thing is a thing until they experience the thing for themselves. Mm -hmm. The hard bit is like, this doesn't happen to me. This doesn't resonate with my experience. But one, I accept that it happens to other people. I see that that is problematic and I understand that is problematic. And two, I want to do something different about that. Yeah. Being attuned requires one to decenter their own experience and privilege the experiences of others as being just as valid, valuable, unique in the world. So I think there's the first bit and just looking around at people's experiences and being aware of them from a social perspective, the different experiences that people have and the ways in which society or our social interactions, our interpersonal relationships, our professional relationships impact our experiences of the world around us and ourselves Yeah, is kind of a first step. Do I think that you should be going to the Black family at the checkout counter and like trying to pick up their bags and give them rides home and shit? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> 
going that far. <laughs> if you start trying to like pick up a bunch of black people, I'm going to call the police. <laughs> yeah, rightly so. Something will be really wrong with me in that moment. I think it's about recognizing when something is divergent from your experience and it has a negative impact on that person. Yeah. So in the example of being in the cafe, when you are you know, well attended to and well watered yeah. and whatever, and somebody else isn't, I think it's really easy to say, oh, hey, you know, don't forget to fill up that person's water or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I yeah. feel like there's ways that it can be acknowledged or, or dressed. You don't have to start like flipping tables over and like kicking yeah. people in the <laughs> chest. But I do think that there's small ways that you can show that you've noticed something is happening. What I find that is really helpful is just the acknowledgement that something's happening or like that look over at another person of like, oh yeah, dickhead or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Just that acknowledgement. Because I go back to the point that for me, it's just knowing I'm not by myself in that experience because that's the hardest bit is just being a, by yourself in an experience that gives you those prickly weird feelings and knowing that the other people around you don't know what that's like and therefore it's harder to explain why that's fucked up. Yeah. The only person who's going to know it is the other like you know, visibly queer person or the only other person of color, whatever, a person who's marginalized, different, whatever, in any way that's not the majority. I think they're going to be the only people who like are attuned to something being different or the ways that they're treated differently, which yeah. are different for those different people absolutely. as a group and as individuals, right? Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps another struggle that feeds directly from that is how do you deal with other people's discomfort at what you're raising? So maybe you do raise something up. Maybe I, as a white person, raise something at the checkout counter. I don't know. I love all Cafe, these places we go to. Wherever. <laughs> I mean, I just kind of place it Cafe, in like real context. Grocery store. And maybe that person gets reactive or tries to shut you down or is argumentative or ignores you, whatever, right? There's a, there's a discomfort and a familiarity for white people to get involved in that and to be prepared for that. And I, something I personally struggle with is when people have argued with me back in the past, like trying to find my response that they will understand. And that's coherent and not like, you know, me going off on like random shit. But my memory is terrible, everyone. But like responding back to whatever they're throwing at me in a way that may mean something or they, they can relate to. Yeah. I find that difficult. Yeah. Uh, and that's partly maybe because I need to read more and come back with more stuff. Personal I, reflection. I mean, you are describing what I experience yeah. all the time, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. how do I say this yeah. is... Like, how do I manage the other person's response? Because yeah. for you, it would be much rarer for you to experience violence as a result of your intervention. Right. For me, that feels much more of a risk that yeah. that could transpire. Not that it would, not that every time you, you know, respond to somebody that they're automatically going to try and beat the shit out of you. But yeah. that is also the fear that I have when I call somebody out is, you know, if you call them out, it looks very different than if I call them out. And so I think that what you're describing is a very reasonable concern. Also, because fucking people are crazy. Like people respond in fucking wild ways sometimes. Especially at the checkout. Especially at the <laughs> checkout. I love that you're at a, when was the last time you were actually at a checkout counter? Because I know that you go to self-checkout. So I have no <laughs> idea where this is happening, what yeah, you're I don't describing. Know. I'm just trying to place it in a context that people might be familiar with. Yeah. I think it's hard to, I think it's a really hard thing to do. I mean, I know it's a hard thing to do because it's a hard thing that I struggle with. A good book that I've recommended to people is called The Clapback by Elijah Lawal. The Clapback is basically how you respond to people who are acting wild. I think the actual title is The Clapback, Your Guide to Calling Out Racist Stereotypes. Excellent. And I have recommended this to people in my life who have found it very helpful in terms of responding to people and knowing ways that they can respond and ways that they can handle other people's responses to them calling other white people out for acting wild, right. being racist. 
Um, and a great book suggestion. I think that's what, what, yeah, kind of I was very much speaking to having a clap back <laughs> that yeah. shuts it down. Yeah. You know? And I think that that's, that's the bit that is quite useful because for me, speaking honestly, well, I'm always speaking honestly, but degrees of honesty, I suppose. I, I think the thing that sometimes stops me from engaging in these conversations is one, not knowing how far I'm going to need to take it and how long and how much time I want to spend in re-educating somebody or trying to re-educate somebody. And is that worth my precious life's energy? And because of the frequency with which these things and these interactions happen, I often feel like it's not worth it all of the times that I have to do it. Whereas if that doesn't happen to you very often as an ally, it almost feels like it's not going to happen to you as often. So like, provided you don't feel there is a fear of danger, just get get stuck into there because it just manifests itself in really fucking stupid ways. I remember we were in a grocery store and we were actually at a checkout counter and I had a bag <laughs> and I was loading the groceries into my backpack and the alarm went off and there were a bunch of white boys hanging by the alarm bits. Yeah. And instead of asking those people what was going on, the guy at the checkout, white guy, just reached into my bag and started like rooting around in my bag yeah, looking for whatever. And yeah. I was like, sorry, Excuse did me. you need to look in this bag? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, but why aren't you looking in their bags? The people who are actually standing by the sensor, like yeah. I'm... I'm next to you with the groceries. If your sensor is going to go off in the same place where you have people standing with groceries, it's probably too close to the groceries, right? So it's stuff like that where it manifests in these really fucking stupid ways and how you deal with that and interact with that is like each individual person's journey. But it's something that Evie said in our interview with her. She's like, the fear of this stuff is more often the thing that stops us doing things than the actual experience of it. Cause in the moment you just deal how you deal with it. But it is truly, it is the fear of that. Like whenever I go to, when I'm in certain places and I'm traveling to certain places where I've experienced like very overt racism or whatever, I just like have these fears that I go into it with. And they really, I really do sometimes find them quite debilitating where I'm just like, I just can't do it. I can't cope with it. And I mean, I'm not too proud. I will often say to people who are around me, if they're white, I'm just like, look, if like shit kicks off, I just cannot cope with it. I just need you to like handle it. Yeah. And then by shit kicks off, I don't mean like a fucking race war, Mm. but I mean like, you know, if somebody's behaving in a way that doesn't acknowledge me as a human being in the universe of equal value to the other people around me, I just need somebody to step in and sort that out. So, I mean, I guess for me, it's just about It's also trying to say, like, when I know I can't cope with a situation though I think it might happen, because I don't think any person of color operating in the white man's world is like not aware of when shit could go down or like they're going to be uncomfortable. I think we're all kind of like attuned to when it's happening. And in spaces where you don't know that person, potentially the waiter or the checkout person, and you don't know what their level of reactivity is, right? Or a stranger, you never know what a stranger's level of reactivity is going to be. Yeah. Everybody just needs to understand the risks that are associated with any kind of confrontation. But I also think that people, some people are just better at confrontation than others, Mm. you know? Yeah. Some people are just much better at it. Yeah. And some, I, I do think that that's probably one of the barriers. Yes. Like if, if as a, like for white allies, I do think that that's probably one of the barriers. Cause if this definition is about calling out racist behavior, yeah. How do you do that? If you are a woman who has been conditioned to not speak up about things, yes. or if you are British and you guys don't talk about shit. Yeah. There are these, I was thinking that, that there are a couple of layers, these layers that are almost like for me personally having to kind of push through to mm. get to the the speaking out. Yeah. I need to be like put aside my Britishness, my whatness, <laughs> being a womanness. Conditioning. <laughs> Conditioning yeah. and being a woman yeah. to, to get through that. Yeah. You know, and that's almost also like a, a, a mini pre-personal journey <laughs> to get there. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of us, as you rightly, are not as good as, as you rightly said, are not as good as com- at confrontation. Yeah. You know, I might just cry. 
<laughs> Which then might just send the whole thing into like a weird play. If we're in a cafe, some shit kicks off and you just start crying. <laughs> I got to get up and leave. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I mean, I might speak out, then they'll respond and then I might cry. <laughs> so we could go another level in potentially. <laughs> yeah. I mean, then we can go deep into like white victimhood. And- <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the next episode. <laughs> yeah. I, I Then I might have to flip a table over. Okay. <laughs> watch out. Any cafes near you. Watch out. Watch out. I feel that with this definition of allyship as one where you are attuned to what's happening or you are evolving and becoming better attuned because it's an evolving process to what's happening around you to other people, then taking action as a practice. So you're continuously trying to take, you're continuously taking action and making steps and that allyship is not an identity but rather an action you take. So acting in solidarity with or act working as an ally. I feel better about white allies from that perspective because I have maintained and continue to maintain, which is not my own thing, but comes from a great activist and social worker, Feminista Jones, who says that she doesn't want allies. She wants co-conspirators. Yeah, I think with this definition of allyship as attunement and action, I feel yeah. a bit better about it. Okay, good. A bit is really meaningful, very valuable. Because because I think that attunement in action, a really nice piece to take away. And then also, I think through this conversation for myself, reflecting on the barriers that are stopping me get there is really useful. Mm. And maybe that's something that every individual white person ought to do as a personal reflection. What are the barriers to me feeling more attuned? What are the barriers to me not speaking out? Mm. And maybe it's, you know, working through some things around Britishness before you get there or yeah. putting that to one side. Maybe it's reading clap back and feeling more confident about what you can say in those responsive situations, yep. whatever. But they're all like uh, white people's personal journeys <laughs> too. But this has been very, very helpful to kind of echo some of those things. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to sit here and speak for all people of color. I feel like... This is all advice that we have collectively gotten together and said, Tia, can you tell Lauren who speaks for all (laughs) white people? (laughs) Melanin deficient. (laughs) Yes. So uh, thanks for the journey with me to the cafe, the checkout. You're and wherever Very else we went to. I think you're doing a good job. Thanks. I'm certain I could do better. Yeah, no, I'm certain you could do better. <laughs> but I think as a as a general white person in the world, mm. I think you're doing a pretty good job. Great, thanks. That's oh, helpful. I got a sticker for you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> That's some merch. <laughs> yeah. Stickers for me. Yes. Okay. This good white person. Okay. Yeah. Just or badges. <laughs> a badge. <laughs> I love it. I've seen a badge in Asia. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Get ready for the merch drop. Good white person badges. Gosh, I feel good about what we've put out into the world today. Yeah, me too. I'm Lauren. I'm Tia. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Bye. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.